Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. I'm the co-founder of Clean Capital and serve as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer. On this podcast, we explore solutions to climate change by talking to industry leaders about the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Welcome back to Experts Only. Today, we talk with the global head of climate strategy, Goldman Sachs, Kara Manjone. Kara and I really dive into the roadmap for ESG through 2030. Uh, at this point, when this gets published, the SEC rules will be out. We'll talk a little bit about the effect that's going to have on the industry. You know, she brings some really interesting facts to bear, including the fact that 80% of the world's GDP is now committed to net zero going forward. This is a fascinating dialogue about where ESG is common, where it's headed. I hope you enjoy it. You can always get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Kara, thanks so much for joining me in Experts Only. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. So I want to explore your, your career path a little bit. Uh, as we're talking offline, you grew up in Delaware. You know, you ended up uh, going to school, getting into finance first, really, before you got into the sustainability space. How did you go from Delaware to Columbia and finance? Was that a, a track you wanted to follow? All good questions. Um, the short answer is no. Um, so if you, if you had told me 15 years ago or 20 years ago that I would be sitting in a climate strategy seat at Goldman Sachs, I would have told you no way. Um, I, I went to Boston College for undergrad and sort of studied a mix of things, uh, English, finance, Italian, um, really just always, always enjoyed sort of optimizing for things that um, things that were interesting to me and areas where I felt like I could grow and I could learn. Um, and I had debated a couple different things post undergrad, but ultimately decided to try investment banking. And that's where I started my career. And that was again, optimizing for an area where I- Can I stop for one second? Studying yeah. Italian to investment banking, that's a good leap. I know. I know. <laughs> it's quite a leap, it's quite a leap. Um, although I can tell you working with ESG is very big in Italy right now, so I could tell you it does come in <laughs> at times. Um, yeah, it was, look, I think for me, what has always been consistent career-wise is just uh, being really hungry to learn uh, and putting right. myself in situations where I have the opportunity to stretch and grow and learn from others um, and do work that's high impact. And investment banking seemed like that opportunity for me. Yeah. So I started here in New York. Um, I actually started an interesting group, which at the time was called our mergers leadership group, is now really core to our MA franchise. Um, but this was, think of this as a product group that cut across industries and regions and was focusing on supporting our corporate clients who were facing hostile MA and shareholder activism. So sort of capital A activism, hedge fund activism. Right. Um, and this for me was super interesting, both in terms of when I was doing it, which was kind of pre and then in the middle and post the financial crisis. Um, and was also interesting because although I was very junior in my career, it's like my first couple of years out of school, what it did was it gave you a lens very early on for how important kind of two core things were for corporates. One was stakeholder relationships. Right. Because of course, if you're in any type of hostile situation, especially if it comes down to a shareholder vote, 
your relationships with your shareholders matters significantly. So that was one. The second was just the importance of strategy um, and not only having a strong internal strategy, but then how do you communicate that to market? What are your KPIs? How do you measure progress? How do you engage with the world on that strategy? And so that was really crystallizing for me. It was very early, like I said, in my career, and I got to work with some, work on some really interesting situations, but it was also an opportunity quite early on to like have a pretty significant uh, aha moment, if you will, in my career. Like these were really critical areas that I wanted to, that I wanted to focus on kind of over the next, uh, you know, forward element of my career. And then when you transitioned, you transitioned from the investment bank space into sustainable finance. Like, did you see that coming? Like what led to was it more than the door opened? Yeah. I didn't see it coming. So I didn't see it early on. I still didn't see it after a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so after investment banking, I had the opportunity to, to work in investor relations sort of in the next chapter of my career. And I actually spent almost 10 years at Goldman Sachs um, spending time with our shareholders on ESG. And when I first started it, it was really, it was like kind of the 2009, 2010 timeframe. Yeah. People and can barely spell ESG at that point. Exactly, exactly. And I was spending, interestingly, I was spending time with a lot of constituents who were very thoughtful, you know, on issues like climate change, um, but typically were smaller shareholders for us. Um, sometimes it was shareholder proponents, sometimes it was the faith-based investors, socially responsible investors. That was sort of the early days. By the time that, um, you know, sort of I left that seat sort of over the course of the, the consecutive 10 years, um, I really had started to develop relationships with all of our shareholders. I mean, it was Passives, it was State Street, it was BlackRock, it was our large active investors, and then it was other stakeholder groups. It was the credit rating agencies. It was the ESG raters, if you will. So these are companies who think of MSCI or Sustainalytics. You may be aware of those names, but think of yeah. companies actually coming up with ESG scores or frameworks to evaluate your company. And so with time, not only did it become clear that ESG was an increasing area of focus for our shareholder base and our stakeholder base, um, but it was also really clear that it was important for us to be really proactive in our storytelling and our disclosure. And so over that time, and this is how I really got into um, kind of the ESG component, in addition to spending time with shareholders and realizing that this was more and more of a priority, was actually getting more involved in our strategy vis-a-vis -vis our reporting. Um, so I led our sustainability reporting and that got me really connected with all of the parts of the firm where we were developing and driving strategy. And then fast forward to where I sit today, leading climate strategy globally for the firm is really a core, A, if there were a function that sat at the cross-section of strategy and stakeholder engagement, I mean, that is really the seat specifically focused on climate. Along that trajectory, where did you sort of see the tidal wave begin to change where, you know, you were first going around to stake internal shareholder or stakeholders and talking to them about sustainability reporting to the point now where, you know, there's obviously massive investor demand, you know, the, the, it's not just coming from the millennials, like it's coming from all parts of the industry. Um, like where, where, when did you see, sort of see the internal wave happen that, you know, the support for the work you were doing really took off? Yeah, well, let me give you the internal. It's a great question. Let me give you the internal and the external, if you will, because yeah. there's always been a really strong conviction around sustainability at Goldman Sachs. 
even from my early days doing it. In fact, we were one of the first investor relation te investor relations teams on the street to actually put ESG, if you will, as an engaging like discipline within IR. It's now much more mainstream to do that. Yeah. But when we did it, it was pretty early on, and it was in part because we had a very clear commitment to spending time with shareholders and stakeholders and realize quite quickly this was important to them, right? And it was right. important, therefore, for us to manage our firm. So there's always been a lot of momentum um, within the firm and conviction on the importance of sustainability. I think where we've seen the acceleration um, is really in the public markets in terms of what is taking place across both equity and fixed income. And just, just to give you a little bit of a frame, we now have 80% of the world's GDP committed to net zero, right? So we've absolute, right, absolute proliferation over the course of the past year or two. Um, in 2021, we had total sustainable debt issuance, so social sustainability green bonds, surpass over 1.5 trillion, which is almost double 2020 levels. Right. So a lot of acceleration in debt markets. Um, and on the equity markets, we saw in 2021 ESG represent more than 40% of global equity flows. So we just have seen a tremendous amount of momentum. And this really matches what we had said as an organization was the 2019 timeframe. It was the end of 2019. And David Solomon, our CEO, came out with an op-ed. And so this is the other sort of tipping point or acceleration I would give you from more of the inter internal perspective. But it's matched what we've seen play out in the broader environment. And in that op-ed, David did two things. One was he made a commercial commitment for the firm, and that's a $750 billion commitment to finance, invest, and advise in sustainable finance by 2030. So that was one. The second, and arguably you know, more important or equally important, was he described why we were making this commitment. And the why really had to do with our view, both as a corporate, like financial institution, you know, managing our carbon neutrality, thinking about risk management from a climate perspective, engaging with shareholders. So that's sort of one. And then two, you know, as a financial institution serving clients, and by the way, those clients are sitting, you know, it's corporates, it's institutional investors, it's asset owners, it's pension funds, it's governments acknowledging that through wearing those two hats, climate and inclusive growth um, have clearly become drivers of risk and opportunity. Um, and so it was really taking a view that this would become more mainstream considerations, if you will, and an area that historically had been dominated by more of a values conversation was quickly becoming a value conversation. Oh, that's really um, and a value discipline, if you will, and an opportunity. And so I think, um, I give you those external kind of data points because I think it just really shows that that hard acceleration that we had started to feel in CEO level conversations and CIO level conversations, board level conversations is really clearly playing out now in the broader marketplace. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. You've been sort of at the, the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff for you know over, over a decade now, really, when you've been thinking about ESG and shareholder engagement and uh, before 2010. We are now getting at a point where you're right. The, the the tidal wave is here, but the rules are still very emerging, right? And how we're measuring this stuff. 
you know, how have you guys begun to tackle that? I know Goldman's really been a leader in helping establish those rules and figuring out, you know, whether it be talking about the European taxonomy or what's going on here in the US, you know, the SEC rules that are about to come out or, or by the time this published should be out. Like, how have you guys worked in that um, environment to help shape the rules so that it just makes sense for investors? Yes. Okay, so this is such an important topic. And you, John, you and I have talked about this before. For all of the acceleration that we've seen, so I kind of gave the glass half full, if you will, on the on the prior answer. Yeah. <laughs> we've seen a tremendous amount of momentum and acceleration. I think the glass half empty or kind of the counterpoint to that is to say that for all of the momentum we've seen in ESG, and I think this is really the crux of your question, like where where are we in the journey and what more um, has to come, if you will, in terms of how yeah. we manage performance right and so what are the frameworks that exist today and where do we need to go and um <clears throat> i'll give you a, a couple of things that i think we've we've seen today and where we need to go one is we're really moving from a place of um aspiration and voluntary commitment to a place of execution on those commitments right and um and also moving from a largely voluntary framework to, you know, to your point, to a place where we're actually going to have more, you know, concrete and some jurisdictions mandatory data. We're, you know, we're having this conversation um, the week that the SEC, you know, is releasing its mandatory climate disclosure rule. So the first time we'll have proposed mandatory uh, disclosure related to climate here in the US, for example. And to date, we've really had a very heavy reliance on third party ESG scores. And these are, these have played a really important role in certain areas like fund construction, for example. Um, but there's a lot of uh, information and noise that can go into these, into these third-party ESG scores. Right. To actually compare, and I, I did this when I was in the investor relations seat, believe it or not, I used to spend time with close to 10 different organizations that were rating us on ESG. And there often was not a tremendous amount of consistency between the approaches, which is natural, right? It's a lot of different organizations developing frameworks. Again, very early days. Yeah. Our research team has actually looked at the correlation between ESG ratings across these different providers, and it's about 0.3, like very low. Oh my God, really? That's yes. amazing. Yeah, and you compare that to typical correlation between like Moody's and S&P for the same corporate, and it's like 0.99. Wow. So, um, so a lot of divergence, a lot of the third party ratings have a heavy reliance on policy. So less about performance. Yep. And that's, that's sort of where we are today. But I think where we're shifting to is a place where we are going to have, um, you know, a pretty significant ramp up of performance related ESG data that looks at risks and opportunities. Um, and I think the positive of that is that's going to make a real difference in terms of the ability for investors to measure and manage progress. Um, it helps, you know, organizations think through when they set significant goals, whether that's net zero goals or other targets or commitments, you know, what's the right information that they need out in the market? How do they want to tell their story? And then shareholders be able to actually ascribe value to that strategy. And so I think like, what I, the lens I would really put on it 
is moving from a place of a lot of different information, pretty early innings, to right. a place where we're really optimizing for how ESG factors intersect with financial returns. And that's going to change depending on the sector, depending on the business. It could even change based on institutional investors' view. Um, but I think that is part of the progression that we're seeing. I think that's one. Um, the second, and I know this is a little bit of a long answer. Oh, this is super interesting. So keep going. <laughs> give you the lay of the land. I, I think the other piece um, which is which is a really important piece as well, is also just thinking through how do we get to a place where we have, you know, clean, reliable, but also affordable energy, and some specifically double-clicking on climate right now. But there's a lot that needs to be in place for that dynamic to happen. And so I think a lot of the discussion that's also happening in the market now is how do we look at the approach within the private sector in a really holistic way so that we are actually you know, supporting funding, facilitating um, a long-term effective energy transition. And so if you ask you know, institutional investors today, you know, financial institutions, big corporates, I think this is one of the big things on their mind is how do we really get to a place where ESG is not just about winners or, or losers, like this sector is good, this sector is bad, right. but actually thinking through it in a little bit more of a nuanced, holistic way that's going to set us up for success vis-a-vis long-term climate goals. Right. Fascinating. So if you, so let's flash forward for a second and, you know, SEC comes out with the rules, you know, I, I love to talk about um, the importance of this, this decade to the stuff that we care about. And you know, if you if we flash forward to 2030, right? Like, what's the environment going to look like at that point? Would there be clear 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 understanding of the metrics, reporting dialogue that happens, you know, on a regular basis from, from Goldman, from your portfolio companies and others? Um, just paint a picture of like if we're going to succeed, what does it have to look like look like in 2030 um, to to be succeeding? So 2030 is not a long ways away. Not at all. Yeah. So it's it's a really important question, and it's something we think about a lot. Um, I think a few things from our perspective are going to be um, core to making the progress that's needed by 2030. One is if you take a step back and you look at the magnitude of capital that's needed to fund an effective energy transition in line with the goals of Paris, um, you're looking at anywhere from 100 to 150 trillion by 2050, right? And then you haircut that for what you need to do by 2030, like sub substantial, right? right? Substantial right. amount of capital. And so that I think is is and substantially more than we're doing today. <laughs> substantially more, right? Yeah, substantially more than we're doing today. I think also worth noting that about half of that is going to need to go into, you know, low carbon solutions, renewables, solar, wind. You know, areas that we've been able to get to commercial scale, if you will. But there's a substantial amount of that spend that needs to go into technologies like carbon capture, sequestration, hydrogen, et cetera, that right. uh, fuel staff that are not yet there. Um, and there's not been as widespread adoption. And so I think for us, what that tells us is energy transition can't just be about 
if we want to be effective, to answer your question specifically, right, by 2030, we really need to be ramping up work with clients across, you know, all sectors focused on decarbonization. And so it can't just be about, you know, investing in, um, you know, renewables, although that's really important, but it also needs to be working with our clients in the auto manufacturing sector and helping them deliver on their EV objectives, working with clients in the power sector, oil and gas, et cetera. Um, and so our roadmap that we have by 2030, and we, we put out a roadmap to the market end of uh, December, that was very clear to say that one, the most meaningful role we're going to play in transition um, is going to be strategic advice. It's going to be capital facilitation. It's going to be, you know, capital raising in the public markets. Um, but that's going to be a really important thing that needs to happen. And there's a role financial institutions will play. There's a role, you know, capital markets will play vis-a-vis -vis institutional investors. But that that's a huge important factor in the private markets is that we actually engage versus disengage. So I think that's that's point one. I think point two is um, there's a lot of gaps that need to be addressed quite quickly. We right. talked about climate data. Climate data is one. If you don't have the right data to measure um, progress, you, you, can't, you can't manage it, right? So I think data is for sure one. Um, I think another area is this point that I touched on in terms of what's at commercial scale and what is not. And one of the things that we've been spending time on is looking at where are the areas where public-private partnership and collaboration can play a really effective role when either the risk factors are too high or the IRR isn't there. Um, and, and one area in particular that we've looked at is South and Southeast Asia, which is obviously critical to meeting global climate goals. We launched last year an innovation facility with Bloomberg Philanthropies and the Asian Development Bank. And for us, this is sort of the, the epitome of how you could bring private and, and public sector together, if you will. This is a great example of the Asian Development Bank has boots on the ground, has a tremendous amount of expertise in this region. They understand the interplay between economic development and climate. There's a lot of projects that they look at. Um, but then there's a lot of interest from private sector in the region, but not all of these projects get funded. And right. sometimes you need an actual proof point and risk capital. And so we, alongside Bloomberg Philanthropies, committed to fund $25 million in sort of risk grant capital. You pair that with, you know, the Asian Development Bank's ability to crowd in addition, additional private sector capital and a credit, you know, credit guarantees that they can provide. And we expect we can scale that up to 500 million um, in investment wow. And so I, I think it's a great example of where we're not at a place where we can actually kind of fund that 100 to 150 trillion, where are ways that we can use public-private you know, collaboration or partnership to actually be able to drive momentum. And I think the, the kind of third piece or maybe um, part two of number two on that partnership point is if we want to you know, be where we need to by 2030, we of course, we need to do more on the policy front. And John, right. you and I talked about this when we were um, together at the Energy Forum in Aspen, but there's a lot that needs to happen vis-a-vis um, -vis, you know, consumer incentives and behavior to be able to you know, achieve uh, climate goals. And I, I was reading the other day that 
in New York State, I think there's 20,000 EVs today uh, in New York City, I'm sorry, that needs to, that needs to ramp up to 400,000 by 2030 for New York State to meet its climate goals. Wow. Right? And so there's a lot that uh, needs to happen vis-a-vis shaping consumer behavior. I think not just focusing on the supply side, if you will, but this yep. dynamic on energy is so important. And so I think the more that those provisions and build back better, you know, there's a lot of, you know, good things on the table. I think the more those can be accelerated, the, the better off we will be, the better positioned we'll be. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see if the current environment, obviously the war in Ukraine is driving a lot of energy conversation, if that can help shift some of the, uh, both the policy landscape that, that seemed to have stalled in DC, uh, but also the, the consumer demand piece. When folks are paying $5 at the tank right now, how's that gonna shift their demand? And, you know, when Ford's gonna come out with an F-150 and you know, Rivian's got their pickup truck coming, like a lot of interesting things are on the horizon to shift that. When you have Will Ferrell having uh, fantastic Super Bowl ads, right, about electric vehicles, like we can continue that momentum, it's gonna be really powerful. So I want to shift from big Goldman for a second and global view and talk about, you know, one of the things we also talked about is, um, you know, as, as a lot of companies that may not have the scale of resources you guys do to tackle this, right, are also going to have to play a role in, uh, in reporting going forward to portfolio companies, et cetera. I think a lot about how Walmart tackled their supply chain and they had some fantastic goals, but then they had to find ways to help their suppliers get themselves in line. You know, what are some of the ways you guys are thinking about educating sort of your portfolio companies to understand how to report in because they don't they may not even have like a chief sustainability officer, right? They may have to put together a working group, for instance, to figure out how to even respond to these type of reporting mechanisms. Yeah, this this is a big look, it's an opportunity, but it also can be a big burden and on-ramp, if you will, just in terms of the amount of resourcing early on that you need. Yeah. Um, actually sort of prepare and get ready for, um, and we, we've saw this already, and what the SEC put out that they'll likely be different on-ramping for just different size of clients acknowledging this reality. That's just one area, right, in terms of disclosure. So, um, you know, the strategy that we've had as, um, as a firm has been, and this is broadly the way that we've thought about our, our decarbonization offering and our sort of um, commercial objectives is really around listening and spending time with our clients and figuring out what they need and figuring out what those pushes and pulls are. Right. And what, like one great example I will give you is we've spent a lot of time with the institutional investor community and it became very clear that they just needed good carbon data to look at their portfolios and they needed historical data. They needed forward data. It was very hard for them think about alignment with Paris for their portfolios, weren't sure where to, where to start if they didn't have that data. And so we spent a lot of time over the course of many months last year actually developing in our marquee platform, which is our sort of our, our trading platform for clients where they can look at their portfolios, there's research. And we actually developed a um, carbon analytics tool for them mm where we inputted raw emissions related data and, you know, as well as forward information, like, you know, targets and things like that, that have been committed to the market. And they can actually use that to measure and manage their carbon footprint now. Oh, that's incredible. So yeah. It's interesting, but I think that's where a lot of the innovation comes in this space is actually building the tools 
that our clients need that we know is going to be useful and practical and pragmatic in the market. Um, so that's one example that I'll give you. I mean, the, the second is, I just, I, I think we need to acknowledge that we're on a journey. For sure, yeah. And, right, and I think we need to, you know, it's, it's important to have the right disclosure out there. I think it's also really important to hone the exam question of what you're trying to answer. Right. And my, my view, and you know, people have different, you, you of course can have different investing philosophies and you can have a investing philosophy, you know, heavily based in values. Um, I think where we're actually going to need a lot of mainstreaming is, is being able to deliver on investing solutions that get at how to assess inclusive growth and climate through the value lens through so through optimizing for financial returns and so that what that may mean to to get back to your question on how yeah. we portfolio companies on this what that may mean is that you know you start small like what's actually relevant for that given company and their sector and their footprint and how can we leverage solutions, um, shared solutions, if you will, to help support that? And one platform that we're spending a lot of time on is called Open Source Climate, which is actually a platform that leverages a lot of the existing data that's out in the market. I think of this as like a pre-competitive layer of climate data. It could be public data from, you know, um, you know, energy websites, it could right. be government websites, it could be public, um, you know, emissions data that's out there and trying to house it and put it in one place. I think this is a great opportunity if you, you know, do have, a, if you're a smaller company, you do have a big on-ramp, how can you actually leverage some of the existing sources that are out there? Yeah. Um, I think there's a there's sort of a wide variety of solutions, but we do have to be really realistic that this is a really big on ramp for a lot of companies, and we have to be careful. I think that we don't create really burdensome like compliance costs or expectations too early on. Yeah, because it's going to scare I think a lot of market participants. No, it's it, first of all I love your term journey because I feel like that's exactly what the, the next few years is going to be here, and it's getting more and more defined and. Um, it's really clear that your experience uh, in conversation and dialogue with shareholders and stakeholders over the course of the last decade is, is paying huge dividends because you, you clearly hear uh, and think a lot about what others, and I guess maybe the best way to put it is have empathy on how others are going to approach this. And I think that's super valuable for um, you know, figuring out the path ahead. So I want to ask one final question. If you can go back uh, in time to Wilmington, Delaware, when you're graduating, to graduate high school in Wilmington? I did. Yeah. Archer Academy. Outstanding. If you could sit down and uh, have a conversation with yourself, uh, what piece of career advice would you give yourself? Gosh, I give myself so much advice. Where do I start, John? Yeah. <laughs> um, gosh, look, I, I think what comes to mind most, uh, most acutely, I would say, is um, two things. One is stay hungry. I think sure. especially... Um, I think it's easy to optimize for, you know, a certain position and kind of have, you go and you look at, uh, look at what's out there and you figure out, okay, I need to do this for three years and this for seven years and this for two years. And then I need to get my MBA. You know, I, I think, 
uh, and there were times where I really thought that way. Um, and I think it got the best of me. I would say the more that you can just be hungry and be open to learning, I think the more that you're going to, you know, optimize for growth and the more that you will end up in an area really like fulfilling and energizing for you. And one great anecdote I'll, I'll give you on this front was when I was in investor relations, I was, it was a couple of years into uh, my tenure on the team. And like I said, I started investment banking. I had studied finance and English, right? I was sort of like, I'm, you know, finance gal and I can do corporate strategy, right? And, and you, you could probably envision some of the things I was thinking about doing in my future. And one day, um, my boss at the time, Dane Holmes, you know, asked me to come into his office and he said, hey, we have this really important project report for the firm. It's called our sustainability report. And I think you should take it on. And I'll never forget my first, you know, inclination, I think response, although I had to stop myself pretty quickly was, you know, I'm not a marketing person, right? I don't, <laughs> I don't write, I don't write reports. I don't know what this is. Um, who, you know, who does he think I am? He thinks I'm going to, I'm going to shift my career. And let me tell you, that was the biggest opportunity that, um, you know, that I had been given at that point, one of the biggest opportunities I think I was ever given. And it's just hard to know what doors that will open. And for me, it was a right. tremendous amount of learning, not just in terms of the knowledge that I had to gain to be able to, you know, feel comfortable sitting with our executive team and going through our carbon neutrality pledge and emissions related information, but right. it also was an incredible opportunity in terms of my internal and external network um, you know, I asked for help from a lot of people. Those were people that became very, you know, really important relationships for me. Some of those were institutional investors who just sat with me and helped me brainstorm how we could improve our disclosure. Um, and so I think the more that you can stay hungry and be open, I, I, I think, you know, the more you'll have sort of doors open for you. As yeah, well. that's, that's, that's fantastic advice. That's fantastic advice. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And thanks for the, the amazing work you're doing at Goldman. Thank you, John. This was awesome. Really yeah. appreciate having me on. And thanks to Matthew and uh, Cordelia for helping to set this up. And to our producers at Clean Capital, Colleen Young. As always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. And we look forward to continuing the conversation.